Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from Mark, the 15th chapter. Mark chapter 15, we're going to pick up the reading in verse 1, and we'll read to verse 20. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, that is Passover, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our heaven shall sing forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would let this passage register with us in our hearts and our minds that you would let the spiritual meaning and import of this text to be communicated to our souls right now. We ask that you would, by the power of the Spirit, lift up our chin, so to speak, to view the horizon, to see the lovely face of Christ and all that he has done for us, and find ourselves more committed to be followers and faithful disciples of him as we are carried along by your hand of grace. Would you now meet us in this text, we pray? In Christ's name, amen. 
We usually read these texts of Scripture sometime in the late winter, spring, usually around the time of Lent and leading up to uh, Easter. This would be, have been a Good Friday text, of which we would uh, read annually. There's something wonderful, there's something uh, beautiful about regularly rehearsing um, the, the passion of the Lord Jesus Christ as a congregation. It's one of the reasons that we walk through the church calendar each year, is believing that we need to be stirred up by way of reminder to come back to these truths over and over and to unfold them in the life of a congregation uh, to help us once again to be renewed in the things most needful. And yet, the calendar is simply a tool. It's not something we have to use. The Bible doesn't command it by any stretch. It gives us freedom within the life of the congregation to read and think and consider texts outside of what would be the normal rhythm of the calendar. There's actually something refreshing about being in this fall kind of context, not having uh, paced through, so to speak, the, the pattern typically of, of Holy Week unto Good Friday and Easter, and to consider the, the depth of the text maybe even from a slightly different angle than usual. It's certainly that way this week as I was studying it, uh, realizing that getting the chance to consider this text at this point in the study of, of Mark helps me even um, see, as it were, uh, insights from this text uh, different from, say, the normal plot line that one would give their attention to. And there's much to be had here in Mark 15 spiritually for uh, each of us. One of the texts that really stuck out to me and struck me even in my own mind in reading Mark 15 this week was one of my favorite verses. I actually wrote to you about it a couple of weeks ago in the pastoral notes. I'm sure you remember. You remember everything I write to you, everything I say to you, you remember. But just in case you weren't here that week or, or whatever, I will remind you of that verse. It was Proverbs 16:9. Man plans his way, but the Lord directs or establishes his steps. And plans his way, but the Lord directs or establishes his steps. Now, when I said that in the early service this morning, I could see people's lips uh, moving in the early service, quoting it along with me, which just reminds me of how often that particular text or that line is rehearsed in our lives because it seems to speak, doesn't it, to almost every moment of our life or every occurrence in our life. We think to ourselves, this did not turn out how I planned and the Lord is directed otherwise. It seems as if every twist in our lives can be routed, so to speak, through Proverbs 16.9. Well, that text came to my mind as I was studying Mark 15 this week because we see lots of men's plans here. We see lots of men's plans in Mark chapter 15. But what we see is the Lord directing the steps. That's what we see happening here in Mark 15. And I want to look at the text under that, that heading. In fact, uh, thinking on those uh, two categories, man planning his steps and the Lord establishing his, his way. And I want to look at it in these two ways. I want you to see first that the world, we could substitute man 
or mankind, the world is plotting Jesus' destruction. I want you to see that in this text. The world is plotting Jesus' destruction. And at the same time, and in the same events, Jesus is plotting the world's deliverance. At the same time, and in the exact same events, Jesus is plotting the world's deliverance. I want to start with the world's plot for Jesus' destruction. And I want to start with what I'm going to call the Sanhedrin strategy. The Sanhedrin strategy. Now, you say to yourself, oh yes, the Sanhedrin. Well, the Sanhedrin aren't even mentioned in the text. So you're not saying to yourself, oh, the Sanhedrin. Um, you're, you're looking at the text and you're thinking there in verse 1, who is this council that's being spoken of, Right? As soon as it was morning, that's Good Friday morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes, and notice the whole council. Well, that whole council is the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious class of Jews that oversaw, in a very real sense, in, under Rome at this moment in time, um, the, the civil and religious operations of the Israelites, that's who is behind the trial of Jesus. Now, they've already tried Jesus. They've already accused him. They've already convicted him. We saw that really last week in Mark chapter 14, and we were actually told that um, Jesus' charge was blasphemy. Now, if you have your Bibles actually open, you could look back uh, to Jesus before the council, Mark chapter 14, verses 53 to 65. And when Jesus says, when they say, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you remember uh, Reverend Griffith last week told us that this, this language of I am is of course borrowing the language of the Old Testament. I am that I am, the language of Yahweh. So he is identifying himself as the God of the Israelites who led them. I am, and you will see the Son of Man, that's Jesus' own reference for himself, seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And of course, he's, he's talking about the, the end of times. He's talking about all of his glory is coming, and you will see it. And here's what's remarkable. You know, they will see it. Every eye will see it. He's prophesying of a day when it will be very clear to you who I am. That's what Jesus is saying. It may not be very clear right now. You may have all kinds of views about who I am. Maybe one day it will be unmistakable. You will see it. So they have already, and then the high priest there tears his clothes. He's heard blasphemy. They have already charged Jesus. They've already convicted him. But now what do they do? Well, they bring him to Pilate. You may be saying to yourself, well, why do they do that? They've already convicted him. Um, they, they know that this is a, they, a punishment that is deserving of death. They actually mention capital punishment as um, the appropriate punishment for the charge and the conviction that Jesus is under. But remember that the Jews at this time, Israel, are under Roman rule. Though they still operate in many religious and internal, even civil matters among their peoples, they still operate in some sense separate or unentangled from the Roman government. When it comes to matters that are related to both religious and civil issues, the, the Jews, the Israelites, can't just go make a verdict and execute the punishment. They have to also then submit their trial to the Roman oversight. 
And that's what's happening in the text that we're in. They refer him to Pilate. Now, who is Pilate? Well, Pilate is the governor of Judea. He is the Roman governor that oversees the area where Israel is occupied under Roman rule. And so this case falls in his lap. He's the one that has to deal with whether they have handled this case appropriately. Now, here's what's really interesting, and this is why I want to call it the Sanhedrin strategy. If they had come, if the Sanhedrin, the council of Jews, had come to the Roman uh, prefect, Governor Pilate, and had said to him, we've got an egregious case to bring before you. We have a case of blasphemy. (laughs) Pilate would have gone... So what? That sounds like that's your problem. Pilate doesn't care anything about Yahweh. doesn't care anything about religious customs of Israel. Their idea of blasphemy. He lives in Rome where they accept all kinds of gods. It's one of the wonderful things about Rome and part of its power, right? Was It would absorb another nation and it wouldn't tell them you have to serve this God and do these things. It just absorbed the gods and kind of absorbed the customs. Very melting pot-like, very American-like in that way. Whatever it is, as long as it doesn't go against the laws of our land, you can keep doing all the things that you're doing. Just be sure to pay your taxes, right? That was the spirit of Rome. If he had come to them and said, we're really concerned about this category of blasphemy, it would have just rolled off of Pilate's back. Notice that Pilate is not concerned about blasphemy in this text. Blasphemy doesn't even show up as the charge. Did you notice that? What's the first question that Pilate asked Jesus? Are you the king of the Jews? Oh, that's a loaded word. That matters to the Romans. (laughs) Now, here's what the Sanhedrin has done. This is their strategy. Their strategy to destroy Jesus. They can't destroy Jesus without Rome deciding to go along with them. They're under Rome. So in moving from the blasphemy charge, which mattered to the Jews, they're now casting this charge in its kingly connotations. To be a blasphemer, to call oneself the son of man, is to call oneself the successor of, the king, of King David. The one who is the fulfillment of the prophecies long ago. The one who will rule the people of Israel. To be the Messiah carries with it kingly, kingly qualities. And so what do they do? Well, the Sanhedrin goes to Pilate and says, Here, we want to give you the skinny on this guy, Jesus. I don't know if you've heard about him. But he actually claims to be the king of the Jews. And if he claims to be the king of the Jews, it it seems as if I remember that Caesar right now is king of the Jews. So this guy is an imminent threat to the Roman Empire. You see what they've done. They've shifted slightly and played up an aspect of the charge in order for the Roman government to really pick up the charge and to become, it become very important to them that this case gets adjudicated. This is the Sanhedrin strategy. This is the plans of man seeking to destroy Jesus. Now, this is not the only strategy, of course, that we see in the text. We actually see... Well, the strategy of Pilate in the text. There's more than just the plans of the Sanhedrin. But really, there is something of, um, 
Well, there's almost something of pity you feel a bit for, for Pilate, or maybe you don't. But if you consider it in this way, that this has just kind of landed on him. He just happens to be the governor at this point in time, and now he is like swooped in to uh, all of redemptive history in the most major case and circumstances of the Jewish nation at the time, because he just happens to be governor when all this goes down. This is a situation, a circumstance that he really doesn't care much about. But he is the only one who can truly adjudicate it in the way that the Sanhedrin want it done. He actually knows that. He's very perceptive. He's, a, he's actually worldly, from a worldly standpoint, extremely wise and savvy. He picks up on the fact uh, that, he, that Jesus has not really done anything very serious. He can't even see anything that he's really done wrong, especially not punishable from a Roman standpoint. He understands there's internal operations among the Jews that make them really frustrated and angry with him, but in terms of breaking criminal laws, he really hasn't done anything wrong. And in fact, when we read John's account and we read Luke's account, we find that Pilate is actually trying to get Jesus off the hook. When we read the historians at this point, we realize that, well, Pilate and the Sanhedrin didn't really get along. You know, these are two different spheres and their authorities and leaders, and one rules the other, and, and there's a bit of a dance going on in the text of dynamics between these two, quote-unquote, powers with each other. He knows that the Sanhedrin just wants the him to get this job done for them, but he doesn't really have a category from which that he can truly convict Jesus. Pilate understands, as is told to us in the text, that he sees that the chief priests and the scribes and the elders want Jesus gone because they're envious of him. He says he sees that. Now, that's a very important term. It's a very important term to understand what's actually driving the strategies and the plans of men here. But why were they envious of Jesus? Why did they want Jesus destroyed? Well, they wanted him destroyed because, well, he had taken all their influence and power. It's, it's, it's angering when you're the big man on campus. And everybody knows you're the big man on campus. And you operate the position of power and can leverage authority just simply because of who you are, the position that you occupy. And it's really frustrating when a bigger man on campus arrives. And who doesn't have your position nor your credentials, but has somehow sucked all your power and influence out. And the crowd seem to be flocking to him, and he seems to be trying to expose you all the time for the fraud that you are. You see, envy is a very important piece. It's not just jealousy. It's not that they just wished Jesus didn't have the influence that he had. It means that they're so angry at him that they can't stand that he has the influence, so he's got to go. They've got to destroy him. That's the difference. You know, envy means that we, we're not just jealous of what another has. It means when we see somebody has something that we want, we so can't stand that they have it, we want them to be destroyed. That's the spirit of what's going on here. Pilate sees that. He understands that that kind of envy is what's actually driving the circumstance. But he's a man in power. He's a man... He's, he's a man with influence, both with the Sanhedrin and also with the crowd. He's a man who has to account for his own actions with the Roman Empire. He's a man who's in a rock in a hard place, maybe several of them, depending on the kind of dynamics that are actually at play. And so what does Pilate do? Well, Pilate does what every politician does here. 
He looks for a political maneuver. What's a way I can get out of this squeeze without actually having to make any judgment on it? And it just so happens that there's a custom, right? There's a custom at Passover that, that one of your criminals can receive a presidential pardon. And it's Passover. How about that? How about that we let Jesus, your king, go? <laughs> and then, then I'm going go, to go back and eat, get, get some supper. You know, that, you know, can we just do that? No, that's not what we want. <sighs> the political maneuver is not going to work. He's not going to be able to get out from under this without making a judgment. He was hoping to be able to. He's not going to be able to. And notice now what drives him. We're told in verse 14 of the text that wishing to please the crowd, he frees Barabbas, and after having Jesus scourged, he is sent out to crucify him, wishing to please the crowd. Now, why, why, would, he, why would he do that? Wishing to, why would he wishing to please the crowd? He doesn't want to lose his power and influence. Isn't it interesting that Pilate and the Sanhedrin are actually after the exact same thing? Differently, but the exact same thing. The religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, are willing to do evil in order to destroy Jesus, to regain their power and influence. Pilate is unwilling to do the right thing in order to hold on to his power and influence. Two totally different angles, same issue. Same concerns. The plans of men to destroy the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a grasp for power and influence. It's a maneuver to hold on to power and influence. And underneath it all, it's a spiritual choice to be your own Lord rather than submit to the Lord. You see, that's really what's going on in this text. That they choose to be their own Lord rather than to submit to who Jesus is, who is the Lord. Now, it's easy to think that this problem comes with people who have power. And it does often come with people who have power. But it's a problem for, well, all of us. And that really leads us to the second point that not only do we see the world plotting for Jesus' destruction, but we see Jesus plotting for the world's deliverance. See, there's, a, there's an irony in this text. It's a, it's a deep irony, and it's surrounding this shady character of Barabbas. Now, we don't know much about Barabbas, actually, um, but the way the text reads, he was a fairly well-known, um, infamous uh, figure in the first century, a, a murderer, we're told, who was um, a leader in what's described here in Mark as the insurrection. Hmm. It has an article before it. The insurrection. Now, we don't even know what insurrection this is, but it probably was lodged away quite easily in the audience that Mark is writing to. It would have been something that they would have known about, read about, walked through, and experienced. We, we might even put it in the category of a, of a revolution for them, or a, or a civil war, or something where if we noted it in our own sphere, everybody in the room would know what it was. That's what it was here for them. And the people knew the name Barabbas. They, they knew this man. He was a leader among the insurrection. 
Now, what's interesting about Barabbas and what I think is actually sometimes lost and what we have, don't often do the textual work uh, around because of when we read these texts is, is he's a very unique character who comes to us with a very unique name. It's, a, it's an Aramaic name, a name that is a compound word, bar Abbas. Abbas, Abba. We just heard this word in the previous text in Mark chapter 14 when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and he said, Abba, Father. Same word. Bar is the word for son, son of the Father. That's who Barabbas is. He's son of Abba. And he is being compared to the son of Abba. There's two sons of Abba here that are before us in the midst of this trial, in the midst of this who will the world choose? Who will the crowd want? Will they want a political revolutionary who is a murderer and an insurrectionist? Or will they want Jesus the Christ? Which son of the, the father is the one who will be chosen? Isn't it ironic that Jesus here, as a king of the Jews, is actually being painted before the Roman government as a potential threat for insurrection? Here is a, here's a traitor. Here's a man who's treasonous. Here's a man who could pull together some guerrilla warfare and try to take the throne. He needs to be condemned. Who do you want to free? A man who's already done that. There's the irony in the text. Two sons of father, one being condemned, one being freed for the same charge in a very real sense. But oh, what a contrast these two characters are. Barabbas, well, he tried to grasp for political ascendancy, didn't he? Through, through, through military force. Uh, trying to lead an insurrection by taking lives along the way. But Jesus has resisted political power at every turn. Even much to the chagrin of his disciples. Submitting himself even now in this moment to the powers that be. Part of the remarkable quietness of Jesus in this text, obviously reflecting Isaiah 53 and the fulfillment of like a lamb led to the slaughter, he spoke not a word. It's an obvious fulfillment here in the text of what the prophets told us to expect with the Messiah. But even, even more than that, Jesus here is simply submitting to the plans of men, to the, to the destructive plots and patterns before him. He's not making a case for his freedom. Standing before Pilate in the face of these charges, he refuses to fight. Now maybe that, maybe that seems um, bewildering to you. Why, why did he not defend himself? Well, it certainly is to fulfill prophecy and all of those kinds of things. Well, he actually makes it more clear. More clear in, in the Gospel of John, because when he's having this conversation with Pilate, Jesus says this. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants 
would be fighting. But they're not. Nor am I. That's not my kingdom. My kingdom is not like Barabbas' kingdom. The, the kingdom that I speak of is a kingdom that is not of this world. Isn't it remarkable here that Jesus is painting for us a real picture of the kind of kingdom that he has come to bring? Now, when you begin to look at these two men standing before the crowd and now sitting now before Pilate, and we're actually seeing the story of the gospel really played out. At the, at the core level, you do realize that we're all, well, we're all Barabbas. I don't mean to offend you. I, I, I know many of, many of you have not murdered someone, hope not, murdered someone, have not led a coup d'etat and an insurrection, you have not tried to overthrow the U.S. government, at least not yet. Some of you have been tempted, you know who you are. But at the heart of the story of the Bible and the problem of mankind is the issue of insurrection. You remember in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve are there before the evil one and he's tempting them to eat of the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil. When what they chose in that moment was to be lords of their own life rather than to submit to the Lord. That's insurrection. That's insurrection. More personally, you, you know that sin you confessed a little bit ago when you did that? That was insurrection. You know, every time you sin, you say, you will not be my Lord. I will be my Lord. That's the heart of an insurrectionist. I will do what I want to do. When Jesus said, Abba, Father, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prayed, his prayer was, not my will but your will be done. And he's standing now before this, another son of the Father who prays that prayer, not your will, but my will be done. This is the contrast between the, the sin of man and the Redeemer who is the only fit Savior of the world. This is what we have actually right here before us. And yes, in a sense, Jesus did actually come, well, to be an insurrectionist. But not in the way that anybody in this text is thinking. In a, in a more powerful, in a more enduring way, in a transformative way, Jesus came to lead an insurrection that would be an end to all insurrections. That's why He came. To root out the hearts from which insurrection comes. Not by killing others and by seizing the throne of Rome, but by laying down his life. And then as he says in John 10, by taking it up again. And ascending not to the throne of Rome, but to the throne of heaven itself. 
Where today he tells us that he exercises all rule and authority over heaven and over earth. You know, when he's talking to Pilate, Pilate says at one point, Don't you know I have the power to condemn you or to free you? Oh. And Jesus' response, of course, to Pilate, You wouldn't have the authority that you have if it had not been given to you by my Father who is in heaven. Jesus says in that John 10 passage, he says, No one takes my life from me. Well, if you're looking at the plans of man, it looks like they do. It it looks like that's exactly what's happening. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord, he says. I have authority to lay it down. Interesting choice of terms. And then he says, I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Now, interestingly, in all of this, Jesus is trying to tell us that when the chief priests were making their plans to destroy him, and when Pilate, even through social pressures, decide to issue the edict and to send him to crucifixion, and even when the soldiers are uh, mocking him and scourging him, and even when the crowd is crying, crucify him, and all of the world is plotting to destroy Jesus, all of the world at the same time is in Jesus' plot for their deliverance. At the exact same time that's happening. Pilate is amazed that Jesus will not give a defense uh, for himself in this moment, but he has no idea what kind of insurrection Jesus has come to bring. One that will be increasingly seen in the days to come, in the centuries to come, now in the few millennia since the time of the resurrection. I love the way Tom Skinner put it. He says, Barabbas was a guy burning the system down. He is killing people. But if you let Barabbas go, which is what happens in our text, you can always stop him. The most Barabbas will do is go out and round up another bunch of guerrillas and start another riot. But you can always bring him down by calling in the National Guard. Found out where he's keeping his ammunition, raid his apartment, and without a search warrant, shoot him in the middle of the night while he's asleep. You can stop Barabbas. But how do you stop Jesus? They nail him to a cross. They buried him. They rolled a stone over his grave. They wiped their hands and they said... There's one more radical that will never disturb us again. And three days later, he pulls off the greatest political coup of all time. He got out of the grave. And he became the leader of a new creation who is overthrowing the existent order and establishing a new order that is not built on men. That's what Jesus is doing. How do you stop Jesus? The the insurrection that stops all insurrections. All insurrections one day will be stopped because when Jesus returns, we're told every 
knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is what? He is Lord. This is the kingdom that Jesus has come to build. It's totally different. It's not of this world. And, and notice that it comes to us not, this is very important, it comes to us not through fighting. Hear that. Hear that. It comes not through fighting. <laughs> if his kingdom was of this world, it would come through fighting. But his kingdom is not of this world. Do you see, we, we think that the kingdom comes when we win the fight, whatever the fight is. That's not the kingdom. And even though we think we're fighting for the kingdom, when we're fighting, our fighting belies the fact that we don't really understand the kingdom. We don't really understand his kingdom. He came not to take lives, but to lay his life down. He came to establish a kingdom that was built on love. Where as he hung on the cross, he would say, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. You know, perfect picture, isn't it, of, of the gospel. Bar Barabbas, guilty criminal, deserving of condemnation, goes free. Jesus, perfectly innocent, condemned for what he did not do. That should sound really familiar, my friends. Do you see we're all Barabbases in the end? I joked in the first service, I, I would sometimes, I mean, this is where it comes from, but I would sometimes have people say to me, you know, Nate, my, my real name, my mom calls me Nathan, right? It's my real name. Now you're all going to be like, Nathan, yeah, you know. Yes. She calls me Nathan. If you go to a family reunion, you're going to hear Nathan. That's what you're going to hear. I became, I'm not going to go down this path. But I came Nate at some point and it stuck. And so here I am. I would sometimes hear from people when I was Nathan. Um, I would hear such a great biblical name, right? You know, such a great Daniel, Nathan, David. No one names their son Barabbas. No one. No one. Have you ever met a Barabbas? No one names their son Barabbas, but here's the thing. We're all named Barabbas. And here's what Jesus is doing, you understand. Jesus is renaming you Christ Christian. That's what he's doing. He's giving you a whole new identity. He's, he's giving you his identity. He took your identity on himself and he nailed it to the cross. You're no longer, you've been, you've been bought with a price. You're no longer your own. You're a Christian. So he's saying, what does a Christian do? Follows the lordship of Jesus. He follows the lordship of Jesus. By his grace, let's be Christians. Let's, be, let's put away Barabbas ways. We're not Barabbas anymore. We're new creatures in Christ. 
We're Christians. Let's follow Jesus. And let's find under the banner of his lordship the sweetest grace and every reason to obey his every order. Because the kingdom that is here and is coming is a kingdom where he rules over all. Father in heaven, would you please extend your rule through Christ as he rules and reigns on high even now. And would you let it start in the hearts of all of us right here in this room. Hear this prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.